Hey guys, before you skip forward to the meat of the episode, please take a moment to listen to this because this is a company you need to know about. I'm really excited to share with you guys that I've partnered up with a wonderful company that's innovating how we connect with those that we've lost. That company is called After. And if you haven't heard about them, here are the details. They've created the first ever gravesite camera system. What that means is that they provide for you a camera that's solar powered for you to put in the gravesite of your loved one and you get a constant 24-7 live feed of that gravesite through your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever it may be. What's beautiful about that is that you can also share audio with the gravesite from the comfort of your home from your phone. So this is a beautiful way to stay connected when there's distance between you and the gravesite of the loved one, especially now during COVID times, travel restrictions, even if it's just distance that's separating you and you can't go visit the gravesite every month or every week or as much as you'd like, this is the way to do it. So Super cool. If you guys want to find out more, their website is after.live and that's A-F-T-R dot L-I-V-E. And if you use my code, which is death dash 10, you get 10% off your camera. If this isn't for you at the moment, make sure you go check them out regardless. Tell your friends about it because this is really powerful technology that everyone should be aware of. And now, welcome to episode 34 of the Conversations on Death podcast. My name is Lorena, and I'm your host for the Conversations on Death podcast. Death is the one thing we all have in common, yet it's one of the most taboo subjects in our culture. So, I invite you, dear deathling, to join my guests and I as we dive deep into everything death-related, and in the process, learn about the many lessons death has to teach us, the living. On today's episode, I spoke to Jessica Race, who is also known as the Death Empath. She's an Inelda-trained death doula who specializes in grief, loss, and shadow work. We touched on so many different topics. Initially, we talked about our obsession with death, about suicide ideation, energetic and living deaths, grieving, misconceptions about grief, how to use dance as a way to feel our emotions and grieve, how to support a grieving friend, death anniversaries, and we even discuss some of her experiences as an empath and what that means and downloads that she gets and all this really interesting stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Jessica. All right, so let's just get started and tell me a little bit about how you got into this and when did your relationship with death um, in a more conscious way begin or how? Hmm. I love that question, actually. So uh, how I got started, I mean, I it was all intuitive based. I was uh, kind of just obsessed with death and dying forever. <laughs> so uh, I have been battling or I should say battling. Uh, I've had chronic depression for over 20 plus years. And I was always trying to find a way to like manage it and understand it better. And um, my husband's grandmother passed away by herself and it really stirred up some like really intense emotions for me. And I was like, what is this? And culturally speaking, like dying alone is something that doesn't really happen. Um, And 
that made me start researching like hospice and how I can volunteer at hospice and found like no dying alone, the organization, like uh, no one dies alone and um, started doing the hospice volunteer work. And then I found this thing called an end of life doula association, which was an ELDA. And so I got their first training I could get my hands on. And that's really where it kind of started getting momentum, I should say, because my, being close to death and dying and romanticizing death had been with me for a really long time. But that was the, like the momentum that created what is the death empath now and my current work. Um, and it helped me realize that death being kind of like obsessed with death, like I was, wasn't a bad thing that there was a space for me. And after getting my training done, I, was starting to implement things I had learned in my work, which I was like a high profile event producer at the time and burnt out and was using this as like a form to like give me some purpose and try to do good in the world. And um, my grandmother passed away. Then my own maternal grandmother passed away and she was like the matriarch of her family and my last grandparent. And I was at her bedside and my grandmother passed away in my arms, took her last breath in my arms. I was in bed with her. And just being able to guide my elders through that, which again, in my culture, I'm Mexican-American, being able to even be in the same space energetically, emotionally with your elders is like massive. So I felt like it was this beautiful rite of passage and that I was in the right space guiding my elders through the transition of their mother. And uh, it felt very cosmic and it felt life-changing. For a second, I did feel like the angel of death. Like, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> because when my, I um, kind of did these like meditative mantras with my grandmother in Spanish. And I was telling her it was okay to go and, you know, to go be with my grandfather. And I held the rosary for her and I had her in my arms and I gave her morphine, which was normal and natural thing to do at that time. And I felt like I, for a second, caused her passing. And um, it took me about two weeks to process all that. And then when I did, I realized I, was, I found my purpose and like my calling. And I was like really kind of freaked out at first because, again, like you're told like you're morbid and stop being so weird and why are you so into death? And then um, – but I was still really excited about it. And that's where it kind of all started. And then I – it took me about two years to really figure out how to leave my business, right? This like baby I had built from the ground up. But when I did, there was just like this relief of being able to fully go into this work and it took off. I took off in it and it's been amazing ever since. I'd love to hear more about that work and in person, how, how that looks versus online. Cause I know you're doing a lot of that too now. I'm sure with COVID, I had a lot to do with it. But before we go there, I'm just a little curious. Like, why do you think um, you have that obsession with death? Because I share that same obsession since, like, I was a little girl. And I always kind of blame it on my dad because he has it, too. But it's just it's a very curious thing because most people don't have this obsession with death. So <laughs> what do you think it's about? I don't know. Have you given it any thought? Absolutely. Uh, I come from a line of death workers. 
So somewhere, I mean, culturally speaking, there's a lot of death representation in Mexican culture. We have the Day of the Dead. We have, you know, Santa Muerte. And then if you go even further into their indigenous roots, there are death gods, multiple death gods that are both female and male representing. And uh, I have the incredibly vivid memory of being at like the Catholic nine-day vigils, right, of prayer and being so at peace and at home in that space where people are just crying and there's candlelight everywhere and it's dark and people are holding each other and supporting each other. And that is kind of like the basis of where all my work comes from is that moment, that one memory I have just being seven years old and feeling so at home with people around me fully expressing themselves and their sadness and their loss, but also their love, like this immense amount of love uh, in a community. So I have done a lot of work into looking where it comes from, and I've done even past life regressions and death work comes up. And I think just ancestrally, like I said, it's there's a lot of death representation in our culture and it's a part of our lives. And it's funny, like, I don't know if you've ever noticed I don't know how familiar you are with like the Mexican culture. There's a lot of fatalistic aspects to our music and um, the way we communicate and the way we live our lives are like, we work really hard. And then we like take the weekend to just like super like party and be with family and like drink. And, and I think that has something to do with our roots of understanding like life and death are part of the same cycle and live life as much as you can and uh, realize that death is also something that's very sacred and that needs a lot of support and love surrounding it. Yes, indeed, girlfriend. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel the same? Like, is that, do you feel like this? I feel like a calling or a pulling, a pull to it, to death. Work. I have, it's, it's definitely, I definitely feel pulled towards it, but I don't know if I would consider it a calling. I, as far as like ancestors and stuff uh, connected to it and, like I said, I'm from Argentina. It's not really a thing there um, compared to Mexico. I know it's, you know, you guys are very in touch with that. But in Argentina, it's not like that. People kind of try to avoid the topic just like here, um, except for my dad. So I always like go back <laughs> to my dad. I mean, he's been talking to, to me about this since I was like two or three years old, you know, just like especially um, the afterlife and uh kind of just like the curiosity behind it not necessarily telling me like this is what happens after we die but just like what happens like what do you think happens this is one theory this is another theory um and I remember my mom my mom is actually the complete opposite of my dad in in that sense she doesn't like talking about death because she had some like not so nice experiences with death, uh, like of her grandparents and stuff when she was young. So she tries to avoid it, but my dad always encouraged it. So I had this like weird imbalance, you know, one telling me let's talk about it. The other one, no. And of course, being that my mom said, I don't want you to talk about it. I wanted to talk about it more. So (laughs) I don't know if that also pushed me to explore it even more, but yeah. And I mean, when I was in uh, college, I want like I worked with hospice as a volunteer as well. And I was just called to kind of use death as a way to live life uh, mm-hmm. more. I don't know, like a 
more present way, if you can put it that way. Um, I just feel like death has a lot of lessons to teach us. And I just wanted to extract those lessons from, from the people that were closest uh, to dying. Um, and so anyway, yeah, it ended up becoming this podcast, I guess, and just like interviewing and talking to all sorts of different people from different backgrounds and ways of thinking. Uh, I just want to fill my brain up with all this knowledge and then I guess to try to figure out what the fuck I believe. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's just a journey of exploration. And I guess we're never going to know until our time comes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that you talk about death being life affirming. So again, being someone who romanticized death and dying, suicide, death, ideation, suicide attempt survivor myself, I saw death as like the ultimate way out. I'm like, okay, I got to get out of this place. Thank goodness I'm out, you know? And now um, the lesson in it is that my depression really came from a place of not being able to live a life that I wanted to live. Like I felt very stifled. I felt very trapped in my circumstances. And then now when I do have like the depressive episodes, I realize it's like a like a gauge of like, oh, girlfriend, for the last month, you have not been taking care of yourself. You've not been like really doing self-honoring and like making time for you and your needs. You haven't been sleeping. And so my depression kicks in because it's like telling me you are not living your life right now. Instead of before, it was like, I want to die. My depression would tell me I wanted to die, my suicide ideation. And now it's like, I want to live. Do your thing. Like get up, get out, like get back on track live your purpose. It's like reframing the way you interpret that um, suicide ideation or whatever it may be. Yeah. It's all about how you interpret it and what it means to you. So at this point, it's more like a compass to see, you know, like a little alarm going off. Something's going on. Something's wrong in my life. Like, let me figure out what it is that I need to fix rather than like, oh, this means I should die. And I suck. (laughs) And I'm failing. Yeah. 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 And that also goes along with like, um, leaning into the weird is what I always say. Just like lean into, because when you do, when you do have this societal weird fixation with death, whatever, like how society sees it as a bad thing, like you're morbid or macabre, when you just lean into it and go like, not all of us are meant to just work in the light and the love. Like not all of us are meant to work in those spaces of, of beautiful rays of rays of sunshine. Some of us are meant to be in that, those deep, deep, dark, divine, still spaces of shadow to help people guide them through those things. Um, And so I think that's also why people are attracted to doing death work because it's helping people in those spaces that are very difficult for all of us. Yes. And there's also light in all of those spaces. It's not one or the other. Yeah. I call it illuminating. I call it illuminating the shadow, more like Uh, moonlight light versus sunshine light. You're, you're illuminating from the inside out versus like letting sun come into you. So that's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I love that. Okay. So, um, yeah. So tell me more about being a death doula and what that was like for you. So, um, being a death doula, when I got to like be in person with people was uh, incredibly, powerful, intimate, cosmic, and um, life-giving, being able to be in those spaces. I did encounter sometimes like where people had resistance and that would break my heart in person, but I didn't stop doing the supportive. So my main, um, being a death doula, I do energetic and living deaths 
are one of my primary like specialties, but I also love being in the transition where we go into the liminal spaces. So when people are actively passing, that's where uh, I shine. I do my best work in those spaces. Uh, so I continue to do them even virtually. So I just turned it into like DMing people or Zoom Zoom calls while they're in hospice. And I focus on people under 40. So Why when I first, because um, not enough of us realize that we die even young. Like we, it's something that happens and we just don't really like talk about it, but it happens a lot. And uh, because I'm in that age range, I feel like, I can communicate with them in a different way. Although I I first started with elders, with older people, I realized there's this this place I really wanted to be in. And uh, so yeah, being a Dutchola has is incredibly beautiful, but it is it is work and it is energetically taxing and it's not something you're supposed to do by yourself. This is what I tell a lot of people, like you are meant to create like a coven or groups of people. Usually my training was all about you work with two to three other Dutchless, supporting one person. And so what I do is when I come into cases, I like to train the family to be a supportive role. So when I'm not there or when I'm remote, like we are now, um, they still could do the tasks. Okay. Someone's in charge of the medication. You're in charge of, you know, when the hospice nurse comes writing everything down and what they say and like instructions, you're in charge of like food and different types of support, ordering food, you know, and taking turns. And you always notice in any family or friend group that's with their people that are actually passing the ones that like right away are really like step up. You are, they're like, yeah, me, give me something to do. Give me a task, give me a job. And it also um, helps them understand the process of dying a little bit better so that they are able to themselves say all the things that they need to say and support them in the best way that they feel that they can. So when their person does pass, they don't have as much guilt or regret. Or like, I should have done this. I didn't do this. I could have done these things better. But yeah, it's definitely something you're not supposed to do by yourself. And it does get hard sometimes. You live with death every day. Like almost every day, I like look at my cat and my loved ones and I'm like, um, you're going to die and I'm going to lose you. And right. I'm personally not afraid of dying, but I do have the death anxiety around my loved ones passing and how I'm going to like possibly have to live through that, how I'm going to live through that. But it also, I go from the, you're going to die one day into I'm going to capture this moment in time and space in my mind and body. And I'm going to pretend like you already died and I'm visiting you from the future coming back into my past and I'm holding you and I'm loving on you. Like you've been gone. Wow. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do you try to do this daily? Like I was going to ask you, how do you take care of yourself? Uh, you know, daily, with, with all this stuff you do energetically, I'm sure it's draining. So is this part of one of your rituals that you have around it? No, it just happens. Like I'll okay. just see my cat and that's those that have so much love for my animals or my husband or my mom. Then I'm just like, all of a sudden it just comes up naturally. And I'm just like, I'm going to just capture this little bit and pretend like I'm visiting you from the future. And it just, it makes you not really get caught up in the normal human stuff in like, bickering or fighting over little things and it makes you see the bigger uh, version of life and that there are much more difficult things in life than 
did you put the dishes away? Yeah. Not, not saying that's not a conversation that you shouldn't have, but at that moment. Um, and then the way I take care of myself, the the things I do is first, it took me some time to understand like the rhythm and the flow of who I am energetically, uh, human design. I'm a projector. I'm self-projected and I am, you know, an empath. I'm an intuitive empath and I'm a physical empath too. So I take people's energy physically. What does so, a projector mean? Oh, okay. So yeah. So being a projector, human design is like your energy, like the amount of energy you have. So I can't really produce my own energy or a lot of it. And I have that hustle grind mindset from before. So I was in constant burnout because it was a bad habit that I didn't know. I call myself a turtle. I'm all about that turtle life. Like I will finish the race, but it'll be like on my own time, you know? Um, and so realizing that my energy is limited but it's funny because I also got my genomics analysis done, like when you test your genetics and it came back, like I don't produce energy well on a genetic level. So I thought that was pretty awesome. I was like, well, yeah, this is rad. It's confirming the two. Um, and so I have to do things like really be super hyper aware of how much I can do energetically. I was doing way too much when I first started. I was doing a lot of one-on-one calls when I was doing it in person. I was doing even a lot of one-on-one calls, helping people train them like how to be their own family's death doula. And then I would take one-on-one calls for grief support. And it was, I was always just like dead afterwards. I couldn't even have a ritual. I was just like on the couch, like trying to <laughs> decompress um, and sleeping a lot. And then I'm also chronically ill. So it's uh, a lot of really understanding, first of all, unraveling the bad habits of my prior work and then um, getting into more of that feminine flow and rest and allowing myself to just intuitively go, what do I need? What's going to sustain me? And when I'm, when I can't, even if I've scheduled something, I've learned to be very transparent and tell people, Hey, I'm having an episode, a depressive one. I'm having a chronic illness episode or issue today. Just want to let you know that I, I, I can't energetically and physically be this or to be in this car or do this, but let's reschedule. But now, um, after understanding my rhythm and flow, I'm really good about just stepping away from it all. Like, before I go, great, I'm going to go ahead and work on all these things. Let me do my content and market, marketing stuff because I have two, three hours left in my day. And now I just go, nope, I'm done. And whatever I'm called to do, whether it's go outside, ride my bike, eat good food, um, that's just what I do. And then I like to really, really just chill, read a book, Netflix and chill, Netflix and grieve, Netflix and anything, and just literally just veg out. I love that. I love that. And and it's so important to take care of ourselves in that way, especially in this culture that we live in. We're always like we were talking about go, go, go. We don't even think to think about that. Like, yeah. And then you end up having burnout. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Um, So you said you deal with energetic and living deaths. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So we have our real deaths, right? When you lose someone, they pass away physically. But we also deal with a lot of living energetic deaths. Uh, When you lose a friendship, when you lose a relationship, when you don't get that job you really wanted, when you um, are pursuing dreams and then all all of a sudden have to like step away from those and settle for something else. Even we really like lose ourselves in parenthood when we become mothers and fathers and 
you know, we're like, man, our single lives. And we don't um, really ever put that part of ourselves to rest or we don't grieve it or mourn it. So I really do help people when they're dealing with like identity loss or relationship loss. And that's um, that area of specialty that I'm talking about where it's uh, death is life affirming. And I am always thinking and telling people from that space to look at their lives of this is something you get to grieve, you get to honor, you get to put to rest, create ceremony for Cause it's really important. I mean, like, can you just imagine we're just holding on to all this grief all the time? We just move forward. We're just like, okay, I didn't, I didn't get that dream job. All right, moving on. It's like, but it's still there. You had that since you were nine, 10 years old, whatever it may be. And uh, then you just like switch gears, go to a different direction and you don't really process it at all. Yeah. All the stored energy that just can't go anywhere. So given that we experience so many types of deaths throughout our lives, why is it, why do we struggle uh, in knowing how to grieve or why do we struggle with the concept of grief so much? Um, I personally believe that we don't really get to feel our feelings to the full extent or express them. And that really does cause a huge wedge and or issue in when other people try to be dismissive or even when they mean well and they give you platitudes, it's because your society hasn't really under like fully embraced that we have all these emotions and that we go through so many things and we should be able to like feel everything and express them in a way that's normal and healthy. And uh, a lot of the time people don't like to seem weak or appear to be weak and therefore they'll like hold back their grief and or they don't want to be a burden or a nuisance like i don't want to burden you with this so i'm just going to keep it to myself but i think it's a lot of like we're not allowed to feel our feelings or express our feelings and then we also don't allow ourselves to feel our feelings and express our feelings because we we've ha- we haven't had any guidance in it yeah right so what are like some misconceptions around grieving that you can tell us about that it ends. That's like my number one. Yeah. It's like people are like, oh, it's been two years. I should be over this. And I'm like, uh, have you even started processing it yet? Have you ever, have you even started processing your loss, whether it's a physical real death or a living death, or have you been distracting for the last two years or you've been so busy at work? You haven't had the opportunity to just like really look at the fact that you lost something so important. So that's the first one. It's that people assume that there's like a timeline and yes. then it goes away. But the reality is you just, you, you end up understanding the the rhythm of your grief and your pain and your sadness. And you start recognizing when it comes on and you just kind of ride the wave. And it's more about management mm-hmm. versus it ever leaving. It just kind of sh- shape shifts. It just kind of changes. The second one would be like, I just want to go back to normal. When the reality is, is that there's no going back to that normal right. because that died. That part of you that was part of that normal also died. Right. And so it's trying to create a swallow, but yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like if you had a really close relationship with say one of your parents and they pass away, you no longer have access to being able to call them all the time like you used to. And so that part of you, that version is going through a death, has gone through a death because you no longer have access to that support system. 
at least not in the the way you were accustomed to having it. And so it's really understanding that you're now having to like create this new normal for you. Another one is that um, it takes some time to process when you lose someone. Uh, and everyone is so different that our emotions aren't. I know one of the methodologies of grief support is the stages of grief. I don't subscribe to that uh, because I, I, grief is like this like living thing and it like moves and changes and shifts and one day you're okay and the next moment you're not. And so it's, I, I see it as like a living, breathing thing that has its own way of expressing itself, the grief part. So those would be like my top three, which is again, grief does not have a timeline, um, you know, and then there's no way of really like creating a new normal. I mean, uh, the or your old normal, you have to create a new one. And then that uh, there are stages. I mean, they do, they do types of grief, like what you're going to going to be going through. Like, yes, there is categories of what to expect, uh, but it's, not linear again. It yes. doesn't just go from like A to Z. It's like mm-hmm. freaking starts off with F and then it goes into like D and then goes to Q and it just like goes everywhere. And some days you're filling the whole spectrum of it all. So yes, yes, I agree with all of those. And also the fact that I think a lot of us think that there's like a way to grieve properly, like some sort of formula we can follow and then we'll be okay once we complete the fourth step or the fifth step or something. Um, So yeah, that's definitely a misconception as well. But um, when it comes to, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I always just say it's your grief, your process. There's no right way to grieve, like literally. And there are grief taboos even. Like grief is already a taboo, which is so crazy, right? We're talking about death and grief and they're both kind of these taboo topics. But like rage is normal. Having sex, like having a higher libido or no libido is normal. Like numbness, feeling absolutely nothing is -hmm. super normal in grief. And so all those things, like you said, like the right way to grieve, it's like, no. (laughs) however we process is how we process and some stuff definitely comes up yes I I I'm familiar with the numbness one and I think that's how I used to grieve when I was younger and then in the last like four years or so I tapped into being like more connected to my feelings and now I actually process it differently but I realized that you know by not kind of like expressingly outwardly uh, through crying or, or whatever it may be in the past, I may have stored all those emotions. And now that I'm like, you know, like opening up the door, they're also all coming through at the same time. So um, yeah, it's an interesting journey that I've gone through and I'm not really sure why uh, the way that I, that I grieve has changed over time. But I guess I want to talk about that because it's normal to also not have like one way of grieving throughout your entire life. And then, you know, if you do it wrong one time, it's like, Oh my God, but that's not how I I grieve this other death. And it depends on, on the kind of relationship you have with the person or even when it's literally someone you didn't even know, like an an actor or, or someone famous. Like there are a lot of these deaths of people we don't really know personally, but they affect us regardless. And that's kind of like taboo to talk about as well, because you feel stupid. You're like, I don't even know this fucking person. Why do I care? You know? So I don't know. There's uh, this whole grief thing is so interesting to me. And 
Uh, yeah, definitely needs to be talked about more because even though it's part of life, we we don't really know what to do about it or how to process it. Um, so I know you talk a lot about uh, dancing and movement mm-hmm. um, as a way to like release emotions or process grief. Can you tell me more about that? Like, how did you tap into into that? Um, and what's it like? So my background, uh, I always say I've lived many lifetimes in this lifetime. Also have died many times in this lifetime too, energetically. Uh, I was a dance and theater major and was a professional dancer. And I opened a dance school as well for underprivileged children. And what I learned through being able to move my body, I always say dance was like my first language to my emotions where I couldn't, when I was younger, I couldn't speak what I was feeling. I didn't trust uh, what I had to say. I didn't trust I'd be heard. And so I learned that through movement, I could really fully express myself. And being in college, you know, I, I actually choreographed a lot of death routines now that I think about it. A lot of like death and rebirth routines because I was able to really fully embody my grief and my sadness and my depression and everything I was feeling at those times. And it helped heal me so much. And I can even go into like high school and having a conversation with my dance teacher. And uh, I was about, she was, I, they were going to pull me out of the dance program because I wasn't doing well. And I was like not showing up to school because I was really depressed, right? And suicidal. And I told her, if I don't dance, I won't, I won't be alive. Like I, this is the only thing that's keeping me here. It's the only thing that's going to help me graduate. And it's the only thing that keeps me like coming to school and waking up every day. And from that, even that moment, I realized how impactful and powerful being able to dance and access dancing was. Mind you, I come from a very like musical performing artist type family and the way we would express our feelings, grief was through singing and dancing. And so that's kind of like my roots. I just never understood the methodology or like how to put words to it. And then when I opened my dance school, I realized that a lot of the children that, because it was for underprivileged children, there was a lot of dysfunction in the home. There was a lot of not being seen, abandoned, a lot of, um, you know, emotional stuff that they didn't know how to speak about as children, as kids. But being able to have that dance school being having access to it helped them really like come alive kids that wouldn't talk kids that were like super shy kids that were like very anxious i saw them really transform and like open up and i saw how powerful i said ah dance is incredibly it was so powerful for me but look it's very powerful for these children as well i came from a dysfunctional home as well so um when i really started the death death empath which was about a year ago it wasn't i didn't have the dance component to it But that was also because I'd gone through a really bad back injury a few years ago and I couldn't dance. And I didn't even allow myself to think about the fact that I couldn't dance because I was there. I was very sad. I was incredibly depressed that I lost my ability to speak my truth through movement. And then I started getting better while I was recovering from the burnout from my business and was like, oh my gosh, I can actually move again. This is kind of cool. And so I first started in a sitting position. And I would just try to meditate and I would put music on and I'm like, I can't, 
I used to meditate all the time before. I'm like, I can't, I want to sway and I want to move. And all of a sudden I, my hands are coming up and doing all these weird things. And I said, you know what? I, movement is a form of meditation. And I know this, I was, I went through schooling for this. I understand like the history of dance and that it comes from a very sacred place that dancing used to be used in ceremony and tribes and natives, peoples and everywhere we come from, like dancing was definitely a part of our human existence and are part of many cultures and um, used for a, a variety of things. And I go, I'm just going to movement meditate through this, you know? And so I would get such amazing healing just with like five to eight minutes of dancing, like two songs. I'm like, I feel so much better now. And I also felt like I could access and tap into my emotions. And so that I would start journaling afterwards and I would do all this, like what I call brain drain or brain dump with the emotions and do like a daily log of my emotions and how it's feeling. And from there, I was like, I'm going to start implementing this in my work. And just, it seems super weird to put it into the death space, <laughs> but I want to be able to dance. And I'm a kind of person that I need to be held accountable by others. So if I'm showing up for other people, I'll show up for myself. So then that's where the death dancing came in. And I did the first few lives and it was hilarious because I was like fully dressed because I didn't think I was like going to totally get into it, but I would and I'd like be all sweaty and and just the euphoria that you get, like when people talk about a runner's high, there's a dancer's high too. When you're just like moving your body, you're sweating, the endorphins are kicking in, the serotonin. And then all of a sudden you have this like space of relief where you may have been anxious or mad or angry, sad, disappointed, guilty, all these things that now there's like space and you realize processing starts to occur because your nervous system is settled down again. You're not in fight, flight, freeze, fawn. You're like in you've opened a crack up to be able to like that space to be able to start processing and going, Oh, that's what's going on with me. I'm really upset because I had that phone call with my neighbor and they said some like racist thing and that's what I'm holding on to or whatever it might be. So that's when I discovered the power of what's a somatic practice. Dancing is somatic practice, a breathing somatic practice um, and how beneficial it is that in 25 minutes, which is my normal death dancing um, uh, timeline or time frame, uh, and it shifts your mindset so quickly. And using it over and over and over again in my work, I, it definitely helps people process, activate, um, settle back down, come back into their bodies, and uh, handle situations a little bit differently. So for someone who wants to try this out, but it's the first time or they're like, I'm not a dancer. I have no idea how to move my feet at all. Like, where do you recommend they start? Is it a specific kind of music that you recommend or I don't know? How does it work? No, actually, it's there's no choreography. There's you don't need to know how to move your body. It's literally just allowing yourself to come into your body and letting your body guide you. So um, with the understanding and the knowledge of dancing and knowing also that your body stores a lot of its emotions um, and also trauma. Uh, I just let people, I tell them to show up, just show up. If you want to do it on your own, literally all the music you already listened to, just put it on shuffle. And then the first song that like makes you like clicks with you, you know, those songs, you have your favorite songs and it may be like, you want to scream to or like move around, like throw things, whatever, maybe that song, that type of music, put that on. And just let your, without any self-consciousness, no one's around you. It's not, when I go live, it's just me. And I say that all the time, like, be weird, be whatever you want, go on the floor. Like no one can see you. Um, 
and just allow yourself to just like see what naturally your body wants to do um, without going, oh my God, this is so dumb. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this. It's more about allowing your body to have its own way to guide you. And I say this quite a bit, like you and your body are in unionship. I know for a long time, people have said mind over matter, mind over matter. It's like your mind is is what runs the ship. And I'm like, your body also has its own knowing and inner guidance. And we're constantly trying to bypass it. When it's when we're tired, when our body's like fatigued, we're like, no, 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 let me just drink another cup of coffee. When your body's literally trying to tell you, hey, you are on this earth plane, this existence because I'm here. You're tethered to this place because of me. If I didn't exist, your physical body, if it didn't exist, what would you, you'd be some energy source just floating about like, you know, everything else. So we don't give enough um, recognition to our physical form. We don't give enough respect to it. And we don't have, I think we don't have enough understanding of it either because we're constantly trying to disassociate or come outside of our bodies. So this is one way to like get back into your spaceship, <laughs> you know, and go like, oh man, you're kind of cool. You're doing all this like stuff and I feel better and all right, cool. All right, I trust you, you know, and they, there's stuff in there sometimes that comes out that's been there for years. Just like um, one of the best examples I've had when I was doing a lot of like the body keeps the score, like, you know, physical trauma. It's uh, imagine you, when you get into a car accident, right. Uh, and it's a pretty bad one. And then you have this like fear of being in cars and then your body braces. It like braces for impact all the time. When someone puts a brake on or something, it's because it's not just like the mental part of it. It's also your body's holding on to that trauma and how do you help release it? So that's the death dancing part. And I, I freaking love it. <laughs> I love it's- it too. I've never seen it done before and it's beautiful. Cause I know, yeah, I know that it can be a, a way to process emotions that are stored. I've, I've had one really, um, I guess impactful. The first time I ever did something like that, I was like a couple years ago, I was taking a course, uh, to be a holistic health coach. And one of the videos was this like movement. Um, and I think she also included breath work in the movement, but it was really strange because I started like crying a lot during this and I didn't even know I had anything to cry about, but that's the sort of thing that made me be like, holy shit, like we do really store all these things. And I had shit that I needed to process and move through. Um, and me, like, I'm not a dancer. I always say I hate dancing, but when it comes to like, I guess some people know it, know it as ecstatic dancing and it's, mm-hmm. I guess it's a, uh, how would you define it? Like non-choreographed sort of movement. Um, That's, that's what really like gets to you. So I'm going to start implementing this more in my daily practice because yeah, I I always like think about it from time to time and I'm okay, I'm going to start doing it. And then I forget. So this is my Mm -hmm. reminder. Thank you. (laughs) This is also where like the practice of yoga comes from like the movement of the body, like your flows, you know, when you start getting into your yoga flows, that's what this is. And it's fascinating because I'm realizing how most people really don't understand what dancing is. We really just see it as like a societal, like way to like entertain each other or ourselves. Like I looked up the definition and I was like, literally like disgusted kind of by it. <laughs> just because I know the history of dance and like how much depth there is to dancing and how it's almost like a, helping re-educate people that it's really, it is just movement and it's the body's way of 
you know, you see animals shaking and yawning and stretching all the time. It's just a normal part. And we're constantly like so tight and corkscrewed in our bodies because we don't allow for stretch and movement and flow. We sit all day, we watch TV. We don't really think about, we go walking. We're not thinking about like, oh, full range of motion. I really need to like stretch the arms out, expand the lungs, like get the blood flowing and circulating. But when we're in yoga, we're like, oh, cool. This feels great because you are opening up all those pathways and different chemicals in the brain are going off and the relaxation sets in. It's like dancing can be the same thing. And that's also why I do movement meditation so that when people are really uncomfortable with the thought of dancing, moving their bodies to music, uh, I give them the movement meditation where it's like you're sitting and you can just sway or like rock or move the fingers and let the head kind of loosen up. But yeah, I think that's, I love when I hear, I hate dancing. I'm like, oh, you must hate dan- walking too and breathing. Because like, <laughs> it's to me in my background, knowing the history of dance yeah. and how like present it was in human existence. Um, it's the same thing. We used to use dancing to communicate with God before war, to go to ceremony, to like celebrate rites of passage, to mourn and grieve around a fire, you know, and then there's a whole history of how it got taken away from us and it has a lot of racist ties to it. A lot of racist ties to it. And that's like the sad part. Cause I can, I see the damage that it still has. It's to this day is still present. And you don't think about dance and racism really, but the history of dance, there's something that's called the European aesthetic and the African aesthetic. So already the delineation between the two is right there. You start seeing where, European colonizers, settlers, like had a very different way of dancing than say the African aesthetic, which was the more grounded indigenous and native way of moving intuitively. So the European, the European aesthetic was more structured. It was for nobility. The aristocracy would do it and it had patterns and movement to it. Like that was very specific for your class. And then the African aesthetic was actually more like what the elements were like and how they would move and how you connected to the earth and the ground and the gods. And it's this whole thing. I can talk about this all day. That's but, fascinating. I never made that connection. Yeah. But do you see that? Like, that's how I know dancing. And when people are like, yeah. I don't dance, uh, I don't we're dance. I'm touch, like, yeah, I'm out of touch with the other side. Yeah. I'm like, you're like, I feel like our ancestors knew that the only reason we existed here on this planet, this earth plane existence was because of our bodies. And they're like, yes, giving thanks to it all the time. And I'm, that's where I'm here. I'm like, let's, let's use our bodies to help heal. So that way we start realizing that it's, you know, beneficial to be in our bodies and let it move and do its thing. Wow. That was fascinating Um, (laughs) to say the least. Um, So what are some other ways or like other modalities that you recommend to people if someone doesn't um, resonate with movement? Um, So there's also breath work, like you mentioned, there's also probably like creating like an altar or something to honor Mm -hmm. uh, your grief. I don't know, just if you want to talk about that or any other ways that uh, people can, you know, yeah, I have my I have my go-to um, toolkit. So obviously somatic practices are really huge, but if you're not a person who's used to movement, um, breath work is great, but also breath work can be very intense and very activating. Um, stretching is also a way to do somatic uh, movement without having to dance. By the way, I do, uh, I have a friend who's like a, an incredible stretch therapist. And whenever I do her classes, I am 
bawling my eyes out in the shower for like 30 minutes afterwards, because that tells you how much I'm holding on in my body. And although I'm dancing and moving, there's still a lot I'm holding on to. And so she does these like deep opening stretches and I'm always like, oh, afterwards. <laughs> so very healing. So stretching, um, obviously yoga, which a lot of people are familiar with. And then for the non-movement stuff or the stuff that doesn't, isn't so um, kind of intense, finding people that are safe. And what I mean by that is finding people that can relate to whatever kind of loss that you are currently going through. Um, people uh, that are safe are like sanctuaries. You know what I mean? That's how they feel. And you can openly talk without feeling like you're going to be judged, dismissed, uh, criticized for your grief. I get this a lot when people are grieving their pets or animals that they've had guardianship over where people feel really like embarrassed. The words that they say are like, I'm so embarrassed. Like I'm grieving my dog and I'm, I'm, and I'm always, my heart breaks when I hear that because our animals and our pets see us in a way that other human beings really don't get to see us. Even like our closest relationships, our partners, our nearest spouses, like just our dogs and cats alone, birds see us in like the weirdest, like the most us ever. Like we walk around naked. We have sex in front of them. We we're like the weird child kids that we are in front of them. And most people don't get to see that. And so when you lose that, when they die, you no longer have that part of your routine, that part of your ritual, that thing, that sentient being that witnesses you and still kind of like is all willing to be a part of your life. And it's just like, you're cool, man, whatever. <laughs> I like that you're so weird. They don't even know. And um, and that's huge to lose that. That's super, that's big. Um, even if it was a hamster or, you know, all of it has a sentience to it and an energy that then kind of like, ties into your energy and becomes a part of you in your life. And then it's like, you just lost a part of you too. And you get to grieve that and you get to like have a remembrance like ceremony for them and, and a full funeral if you want. And it's not going to go away. Uh, we lost our last dog, Casey. She was with us for like 12 years. No, she was 16, but I knew her for 12 years. To this day, I still think about her. She died like six years ago. And I'm constantly thinking about her. I'm constantly being remembered, uh, reminded of her. And I see her in other dogs. Oh my God, that dog looks just like Casey. You know, and I also had a rat. Yeah, and a lot of people like who don't like rodents. And so we, I always feel like I can't talk about my rat because people are like, Ew, gross. But I love rats. Rats, rats are incredible. Here. Yeah. Uh, and I had no idea how just celestial and cosmic and fully present and sentient they are and i remember just when we first got our rat duke i was just staring at him for like three days so i was like because i being sensitive to energies i was like whoa you are from like you were so powerful and so magical and he taught me so much about my abilities as an intuitive empath as a channeler as a healer he taught me a lot about my connection to myself energetically and so things like that, imagine what I went through when I lost him. So anyone else that has a similar experience, which a lot of people who are pet owners have, and that's one area where we just don't really have those safe spaces. And so that's when I say like, find a group, a forum, even a therapist, go see a therapist and talk to a bereavement counselor about what you're experiencing. And, um, or like me, a death doula, like where you just 
have want some one-on-one grief support that there's no judgment that my spaces are very like neutral and they're I create containers for whatever it is that you're bringing to the table. Um, so yeah, that, that's also part of the toolkit. And then some people like talking, you know, like that's where your safe person comes in place. Just talk. And then there's the people that don't want to talk. (laughs) Right. Uh, and there's other, so many other things to, um, exercising, obviously grounding, going into the elements, whatever calls you is also part of like the grief toolkit, but those would be my top would be like really finding safe people, somatic practices, and then talking. Beautiful, beautiful. And you mentioned being an empath. And I meant to ask you this earlier about your name, uh, the death empath, like where did that come Mm -hmm. from? Why were you drawn to that? So I'm a death tool, obviously, and I'm uh, also an intuitive empath. So um, whether it's highly sensitive person, whether it's uh, my trauma has helped me really like pick up on things that uh, other people can't pick up on. Um, I mentioned earlier leaning into the weird and it's really going like, I get these images when I'm talking to people and colors and words and sounds and sentences that come through sometimes. And I just say it. So, and then oh, people yeah. are like, Oh my Yeah. And people are like, Oh, okay, cool. But when you go into session with me, um, I used to call them guidance calls. And I would then, when you show up, because I always believe like if you're called to work with me, it's an intuitive thing. And you just like show up because that's what I do. And um, I tell you, hey, just let you know, I'll be channeling you today. And what it feels like for me is as if I could astrally project into your subconscious, like your realm of existence. And then from there, I let you tell me why you decided to jump on a call with me. And then from there, little words will will stick out and they look like they're illuminated. Like they look like they turn gold and then like light comes out of them. And so like, I write it down, I do automatic writing as you're talking. And then I say, okay, these are the things that really stood out these words. And then I got these colors and these visualizations. And um, then I just really help guide through that space. And we end up coming through. Sometimes we realize it's like a uh, inner child trauma, uh, uh, inner child work where it's trauma from childhood. Sometimes you realize it has nothing to do with why they called me. Sometimes I like to call it helping witches out of the broom closet where they, <laughs> they're they coming to me because um, they're not sure about their gifts and I'm able to read like energetically what they present as. So it's really interesting. So when I'm in, uh, in their realm, I can see it. So sometimes it looks like golden and there's like butterflies and like these little gnome creatures walking around and I don't question it. So instead of like sitting there going like, oh my God, it's my imagination. God knows what this is. Uh, I don't question and I just say it. And if it speaks to them or resonates Mm -hmm. with them, it speaks to their truth, then that's just validating for them. Yeah. And so I said, like, I'll say something like you are really like resonating or energetically reading as like this fairy energy, like elemental. You really like certain environments and I'll be very specific to what I see. Mm. Sometimes it's a forest or a meadow and they're like, oh, my God, I love meadows or, you know, things like that nature. So it's, it's really fascinating because the detail that comes through and how it resonates with the person I'm working with. And so now I'm calling them quantum healing sessions because mm. not only is the call incredibly validating, but it's also activating. Mm. And I do see people change and start to like flourish afterwards. And whether whether that's me just holding a container for them to be validated in, which is, by the way, something I'm really looking into is the power of validation mm. is uh, 
you see them just, you see people just feel when they feel seen the confidence that starts coming through and how they start showing up in the world and how they're like, it just takes one person to like acknowledge me. And that's all I need to just start moving forward. And my becoming as this herbalist, witch, uh, healer, Reiki practitioner, you know, uh, or just someone who's on the path to starting to process their grief or their pain, you know? Yeah. Are you always able to connect in that sense or are there times where you're like blocked and you're in a session and you there's you're not getting anything uh the only ever the only time that ever feels like blocked which that's not even the word is resistance when it becomes like very hard to pull from people because they're holding back so I don't know if you've ever been like in a therapy session and you're not quite accustomed to being very honest with how you Mm -hmm. feel Mm -hmm. you always hold back like those like like things the real you, shit. <laughs> yeah. Like you think they're going to judge you for like, I have major raging anger issues. And so you like, don't tell them like all the things you, you, you skirt or you skirt around or you omit. Um, and so I do sometimes come into have those sessions with people, which is another way that I learned again, my energy and who to invite in. But eventually I'm able to find a way into that space. And then we're, cause it's more about trust. It's more about like, are you really not going to judge me or criticize me for having this like weird connection to being a star seed, you know, because <laughs> they've never said it before. Some I'll get that a lot. I've never actually told anyone that, you know, I don't even tell my therapist this, like I get that stuff all the time. And I'm like, yeah, no judgment here. Like I, this space is all yours. It's infinite. You can bring anything to the table and I'm just here to like hold space for you and witness you. That's it. And to validate your experience in this, this healing space. Um, so yes, I'm always able to connect, but I don't connect without consent, which is something I do talk about a lot. I do not channel people without consent. I am an empath, so I'm constantly receiving information or um, things of that nature. And I'm really cautious about when people touch me and or I touch them because I will receive information that way. Um, so I'm always talking about consent and asking people, don't just go up to them and be like, hey, I got this download. Can I give right. it to you? Because that's very, I learned that the hard way. When I was younger, I would just get all this stuff, but I I also thought I was like crazy. Um, I would get all this information and all of a sudden I would just say it like, mm. cause it would come through and I would say it and people would just look at me and be like, how did you know that? Or yeah. I no longer like you cause I'm not safe around you cause you know my mm. secrets. So I learned that um, right time, right place. And people have to come to you first. And then I also realized like, I have to call in very specific people. I love working with people who are already practitioners, who are already into their um, art of healing and energy work and witches because they're in it. They're like, this is my life, whether other people believe it or not. This is, I'm psychic. I don't care. You know, <laughs> so it's a lot easier to help navigate in that space because they're open to it. Right. And then um, the other people that call in that are, like I said, witches in a broom closet or come helping them come out of the broom closet, mm-hmm. they uh, want to help have someone open the door or help them open the door. Yeah. So, but I had to take, I had to take at least, I haven't done a one-on-one call since this whole year mm. because I had got, I got COVID and I'm different now after getting COVID and what do you mean? I, COVID was for me, its own living, breathing thing. It was sentient. Mm. Mm. Being someone who's lived with chronic illness, a chronic illness for five years, uh, having this introduced to my system, having COVID introduced to my system was 
uh, something I could really kind of like analyze and look at from a place of like, I know what my body feels like in pain and a baseline and then having this new thing in there and my body's like, what the fuck is this thing going on? You know, and how I reacted to it. But then how I felt afterwards. So during, there was a moment where I felt like I wasn't going to make it. Uh, and I had to have my own, you know, end of life conversation. And I, I sent all my things, passwords and everything to my husband. I'm like, this is where everything lives. So I just sent him the link. And um, I've had two of those, like the near death experience moments where I've had to like, just kind of catalog and look at my whole life. And do I have any regrets? Right. That's actually the question. Do I have any regrets? And I don't, this is the second time where I'm like, no, I don't have any great regrets. I actually love that I was able to like find my purpose and I feel fulfilled in life and I'm actually happy. And so I did have that end of life moment while having COVID, which brings a lot of other things to light. Like I was still running myself into the ground. I still had really bad habits and I didn't have the boundaries that I thought I had. And um, so making it out of it, I got survivor's guilt. Because I have access to a lot of resources that I've realized most people do not. And then I was able to live through having COVID because of those resources, which made me really upset because I'm the kind of person who's like, everyone should have access to these things, not just because I have money uh, or have built enough to be able to like buy into these resources. And so I had the survivor's guilt, I had the anger, and then I had the enlightenment which was, holy shit, I'm not as sick as I was before COVID. Like almost full range of motion. I looked 10 years younger for about three weeks. So I was getting these like high fevers with COVID. I was like at 104, 105 for a few days. And I have an immunologist and he was like, hey, just let them burn. So when you do that, it burns out other infections and other stuff you have going on in your system. So I'm where I was like at 65% for the most part, always living with like at least a four or five pain, like the spectrum of pain every day. I like can have days with no pain or like least pain that I can manage like aches and like soreness or stiffness versus like literal pain. Uh, so I'm more at like 85, 90% now health wise. Wow. Yeah. So I'm just so there's this like gratitude also yeah. to it. So I'm I'm different now also because it's created space where I'm really focusing on my mental health. COVID played uh, a huge role in like understanding my neurological stuff came back. So my full blown mental health stuff came back, meaning I got full blown de- depression, de- uh, depressive episodes again, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, harming ideations again, which I was at such a workaholic addicted to work and then so sick that I didn't have time to even think about those things. Right. Like I just was surviving through it all that now I had the space and time to go, Oh man, I really haven't focused on my mental health at all. And look, a depressive episode. What is this? You know? So it's, it's been a weird ride. So it's yeah. been like what, six months I got sick, right like December 27th and it took me three months to fully recover. And then the neurological stuff kicked in. So it's just been, it's been crazy. It's been. Wow. <laughs> COVID. Yeah. For so many people, COVID has brought light and darkness. I think for the whole world, really. It's, it's so interesting. Thanks for sharing your personal story with it. Um, and okay. So I wanted to get into a little bit 
we're like almost at an hour, but this is great. So I'm just going to keep going. Um, how do you recommend uh, someone supports a friend that's grieving? What are like things that you should say, shouldn't say? I don't know. Just guide me through that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying like, we all mean well. I don't think anyone ever goes into a situation where they're like, I'm going to make this person feel worse. I mean, maybe, but for the most part, you know, Um, since we don't talk about death and dying and grief enough, we tend to do things like say platitudes. Uh, So that would be my number one, which is like when you tell people it all happens for a reason. Ouch. Yeah. They're in a better, they're in a better place. Ouch. Um, what other, they're no longer in pain. Your mom wouldn't want you to cry or be sad like this. Like just things that you think are well-meaning, but really don't allow people to fully express themselves. So they learn to like hide how they're really feeling from you because it makes it seem like you're the one who's having more of a hard time with it than they are. Um, so those would be just a few of the things. What you can say instead is, you know, my heart, my heart is with you. You know, um, I always say my heart is with you and my love and support is surrounding you and your family during this tragic time or this tragic loss. Always, I'm sorry for your loss is fine. And then my heart breaks for you. I'm heartbroken. Don't shy away from saying things like this is tragic. This is an absolute tragedy. Uh, I would right now on the fence is like, I can't even imagine what this must be like. So that's been on the fence. Some people are okay with it. Other people are like, yeah, well, you're like, you you can't imagine this. So it's, it's just one of those things that to be careful with. Um, I do tend to put on, on my Instagram, like posts about like the things you, what you can say instead. Um, and I'm here for you. I'm holding space for you. You have my infinite support at this time. And also try not to put it on them. Like, hey, uh, let me know how I can help you. Just send them a link. Hey, I got you a gift card for Grubhub or DoorDash or Postmates. Or just send them food. Flowers are hard for some people, which I know is our go-to because they die. And so some people are really sensitive to that. So I would say, you know, get them a candle and like a succulent. Literally like a succulent. You don't have to water for like months sometimes. (laughs) And then a candle is like, you know, uh, you can always say it's a beautiful, like it's a remembrance candle anytime you want to light it to remember your loved one or so that uh, I'm present with you. You can say this candle is like, turn it on when you want to be with me or someone. Another really beautiful technology, which I really love, like all these like new things that are coming up in the death space is there are these lights. They're actually meant for relationships, but there are these lights that are two-sided. You get one, the other person gets the other one. And then when you turn them on, like that it turns them it turns the light on for the other person. Mm. So I think that's a beautiful way. Like here's a gift that when I'm thinking of you, I'm gonna turn this light on. So you know that I'm supporting you. That's right? Beautiful. Isn't that a beautiful like spin on something that's meant for like a girlfriend, boyfriend, long distance relationship or something, but using it for like grief instead and like support. Or if you need me, turn the light on and I'll call you. Wow. Right? Wow, that's beautiful. So that works across like I mean, like so far, distance, like no, it yeah. doesn't matter. Wow. Yeah, it's almost like a like a Wi-Fi light. So it just, oh, wow. uh, you just turn it on and it turns it on in that other person's space. Yeah. And I think that's like such a beautiful 
way of, you know, uh, light in the dark mm. wow. moment. That's so, oh, I love that. Um, how do you, what do you recommend or any advice for someone who's grieving and going through an anniversary or a special holiday that reminds them of the person? Um, death anniversaries are really difficult. Sometimes they're harder than the actual death itself, because if it's the first year, you may just be processing. Meaning you may just be going to the beginnings of processing. What I've come across when I'm helping people is that they are ashamed or afraid to ask or reach out for support. Ashamed that they're still grieving, you know, ashamed that they're like, I can't believe it's been a year and I'm still like sad about this. And I'm like, it's only been a year. Yeah. Like, are you like, have you even had a moment to really think about anything? You've just been in survival mode. Like, uh, my my best advice would be just be really gentle on yourself if you're dealing with the death anniversary or even a birthday or holidays are really hard. Uh, just be gentle in with whatever comes up for you in your emotions. If you want to throw things, punch empty Amazon boxes is what I always recommend <laughs> safely. Uh, break mason jars, you know, things like that, like where you're not really harming yourself or others, but you're getting it out yeah. or at least making space for it. Like just... Just try to not judge, pass judgment on yourself or criticize mm-hmm. what's coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just really be, be gentle. A lot of the times I see people being extra tired or fatigued. And that has a lot to do with grief too. If you're just in survival mode and holding on to it. And then the death anniversary comes up. So you start feeling like the compounded grief. It was If it was a traumatic death, you start feeling the re-triggering of the traumatic death. You may be going through some possible PTSD. You know, like you have to take consideration, like all the biology, all the, the physical stuff that's happening in your body as the death anniversary is ramping up or the holidays or the, the birthdays. And most of us aren't even aware of it. Most of us are like, man, I'm really tired. And I'm like, when's your mom's birthday? And they're like, oh, it's in two weeks. I'm like, mm. mm-hmm. yeah. so, but you like can a subconscious level and yeah, you know, even like the seasons that we're really not too aware of sometimes, but like if your parent died in a season change and you're going from summer to fall and they pass away in the fall and you start feeling everything cooled down or the leaves start, you know, to change color. So all that stuff subconsciously starts kind of reminding you of the impending doom of having to kind of relive a situation that you may not even be processing yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I do recommend like definitely carving out that time uh, to do a remembrance ceremony of some sort, if you're being called to it. Uh, but you can also just like numb out if you need to, like, I'm just going to Netflix and grieve like for the next week, just do it. Just whatever your, your grief, your process, like let your grief guide you into what you need. Yes. Without, yes. without questioning it. Don't question right. it. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just do it and ask for support if you need it or go through with it alone, whatever you're, you feel called to. So this was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing everything, Jess. Um, I'm going to ask you now to share how people can get in touch with you and anything, any offers they have going on, whatever you want. Yeah. So I do have a website, but it's just like a stagnant kind of website or it gives you links to my program. So I currently run group programs, which I've realized are incredibly effective and beautiful because you have a 
community build, you build a community of trust with other people that you can now call and reach out to and develop relationships of understanding. So the first one is the Human Psychopomp Club, which is for self-grieving, self-honoring and healing. And it's great for empaths and highly sensitive people and caretakers and, you know, people that really don't put themselves first and find purpose in helping everyone else. So it's a beautiful group. And then uh, I'm currently going to be launching the Death Stripped Sisterhood, which is anyone who's more attracted to the dark shadow side of healing. I call it uh, being your true dark divine sovereign self. And um, we talk, we're going to be doing a new moon and a full moon ceremony or gathering where we just talk about all the stuff that's coming through as the new moon and the full moon's approaching all the weird dreams, all the, you know, people that are talking to you, ancestors, dead people, whatever it might be. And we also are doing what's called a dressing ritual, which we dress up at the representation of what your dark sovereign self looks like. And um, so those are the two groups and you can find me on Instagram at the death empath. And I'm also now on TikTok. So I'm using TikTok and Patreon for more educational purposes, like all the questions people will ask me, like leave me comments on TikTok and I'm constantly answering them. And then on Patreon, it's all the death dealer resources and my inner thoughts. And death dancing has been getting pulled off of Instagram because of copyright uh, on the music. So you can always catch it live, but then it will only live for so long on my actual feed and then they block it or pull it off. And so they now live permanently on my Patreon and on my Patreon, I'm constantly put posting workshops and scholarships, articles, like up and coming technologies, eco burials. Like I very honest sometimes about my experiences when I'm working with people who are dying or actively passing, especially when they're very impactful. So Yeah. Instagram, TikTok, Patreon, Patreon, and and that's the Death Empath. Yeah, the yeah the Death Empath, and it's like the dot Death dot Empath. Okay, cool, <laughs> awesome, cool. All right, well, so I'm gonna move on to the last two questions I ask everyone. So the mm-hmm. first question is, if you were to die tomorrow, uh, how would you like to be remembered? So when you sent me this question, I was totally stumped. And I did tell you that before. Um, I think before I got into my work, that was a normal, like, yeah, general question to ask anyone. But now that I'm in it and I'm super deep, I'm like, I don't really care how I'm remembered. I now care more about my loved ones in the moment of my death and how they're being supported and seeing and allowing them to have their truths, whatever it might be. And that's really like, do I want to be remembered as kind and generous? And yeah, sure. Of course. But those just seem like the surface levels of who I am. So I would rather, instead of be remembered, I would rather just have people be inspired to feel whatever they feel like they need to express or feel at my death, at my at my death um, and remembrance gathering, which is what I would call it. I'd be like, come to my death and remembrance gathering, you know? <laughs> I love it. Lovely. Yeah. And the second question, if you were to compile all the knowledge and wisdom that you've gained throughout your life into a message to share with the world, what would that message be? Live a life of your own choosing. Yeah. Like, honestly, uh, hearing all the things that people say on their deathbeds, and always, and I'm not going to say always, but 
very often you see them all of a sudden, all of a sudden wake up to their life and look at all the things they didn't get to do. And they didn't get to do them because they were listening to other people who also didn't get to do what they wanted to do. Right. Which is really, which is super fascinating. I'm like, but that person didn't do it either. And they're telling you not to do it. So I'm always like, live a life of your own choosing, no matter what it looks like, like no matter how off or different or weird it may seem to others, there's always going to be people that relate to you. Like, honestly, like look at the most taboo topics, death, dying, grief, sex, how many of us are like, have come together <laughs> just those spaces alone. I'm like, Oh my God, I found you. You're my people. Um, it's no different from, for all your like hopes and dreams and desires. And there, there's always a community of people that are like, yeah, I'm going to champion you and you're going to, we're going to figure this out. Uh, and sometimes that's not your family. Sometimes you are that odd person out that doesn't want the same things your family wants and shoot, man, like that's okay. Find an, find a secondary family, keep your family and find another family that totally gets it because it's really hard when you're in a place that you completely feel like there's something wrong with you. But when death is in the picture, you're like, oh man, I really wanted to pursue like being a professional skydiver. And my family was like, no, it's too risky. And so yeah. Then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, girl. I love that. Thank you for sharing everything you shared and getting into all these deep conversations with me. I'm sure the listeners will freaking love you. I feel like we covered so much. We did. We did. We covered all the questions that I had and way more. I have a lot to look into. So hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, please make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. It really helps spread the message. Also, if you'd like to connect with me, follow me on Instagram at conversations on death. And I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye.